Hello, and welcome to a long-delayed episode of On War, the podcast. On tonight's episode, Austin and I take a moment to talk about why you might want to study international relations, what careers it might lead you into, and what it's like to drink the Kool-Aid of academia, and perhaps even start your own PhD. Well, after a little bit of a lengthy absence, uh, we're finally back again. Uh, we're changing today's topic slightly. We're going to be um, shifting things, but we'll get to that in a second. First of all, I guess we owe our audience a little bit of an explanation as to what's been happening. Um, I'm about four or five months into my PhD. I've started hitting regular uh, deadlines for things like literature reviews and drafts, and I wasn't quite prepared for that, I think, and I had to sort of rearrange some sort of life priorities. Unfortunately, uh, the podcast took a little bit of a back step um, there. I was also feeling a little bit of burnout in terms of the audio editing work, so we... You know, like a lot of hobbies, you got to pick them up when you've got the time. You spend a lot of time, you enjoy them, but, you know, you put them down every now and again. And this still remains sort of primarily a hobby for Austin and I. So there's going to be times where this happens. And you yourself, you've had your own deadlines too, haven't you, Austin? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, given that I'm, you know, approaching the end of my second year, uh, in the same time period that Alistair's been reaching his original deadlines, I've been reaching sort of the the deadlines that come with getting to the end of every sort of year in a PhD. So it's just been a bit of a confluence there. We're back again anyway, so we'll, that's that's where we're at. And like this is going to happen again. There's, there's no way around that. While this remains sort of a, a hobby and outlet for us, there's going to be other times where the podcast puts down and there might be a few months break. Uh, we'll try and keep it to like less than three. And we'll try and be a little bit more sort of um, vocal when it happens. But of course, when you're trying to shift things around, you, you sort of stop thinking about one thing and move on to another. But we'll try and keep you more in the loop. But there's also been a, another shift in our professional lives. It's a bit more exciting and a bit more positive, uh, particularly for our listeners, and serves as the inspiration for this particular episode. And that's, we've also both become teachers, which is a kind of fun. So today's episode, we're talking, we're taking that kind of experience, uh, being the other side of the red pen, as it were, and combining it with our deep, painful knowledge of what it's like to be an undergraduate and to move forward. And we're taking today's uh, episode and looking at uh, what it's like to sort of start out on that journey and, and what you can expect, because I'd imagine a lot of our listeners are sort of in first and second year. And there's a lot of things that we've kind of learned, discovered happily, painfully along the way, and some things perhaps that we wish people had told us. So hopefully we'll get around to those and the exciting different directions you can take. And this is the thing, right? There's a lot of stuff, you know, particularly in this field, that you sort of, you're told about on the edges, but there's no obvious career trajectory for someone studying IR. There are so many options available to you if you choose to make this the centre of your studies, or even if it's just a strong hobby or a minor in your work, that there's no... Uh, single career path that you can sort of check off milestones towards, which means, of course, there's not a lot of people that are there in first and second year telling you what your options are and what they actually are beyond, you know, a one-page descriptive summary on the university website. And, of course, those descriptive summaries are written by people who have already well and truly gone down that track and honestly think it's the the best career they could possibly imagine. So, I mean, you know, they're, they're advertising it from the perspective of someone who truly and deeply loves the subject and has dedicated probably most of their professional lives to it, that doesn't necessarily help you on the fringes or if, you, if you're not going to chase down the whole angle on it, does it? Yeah, you're 100% right. It, it's one of those things where if you're deep in it, um, and particularly when you get to the point where you are coordinating units or you know writing subject outlines at university level, you're, you're probably, you know, five, ten years away from the last time you actually sat in a classroom as a student. And so there is a bit of a disconnect there between what's sort of put out there in that advertising material and what the actual reality of it is. And, and so I think, you know, we are at this really unique sort of point in our careers where we still remember a large part, as Alistair said, the painful lessons of undergraduate days, but we are sort of stepping into the, the more... Other side of the red pen, as Alistair says. And it's important to remember that, like, not just in the advertising material, but the adver- the attitudes of your lecturers and your tutors is that of a, a very focused specialist. Every single unit you take is going to, you're going to encounter somewhere along the line someone who's literally dedicated their lives professionally or in academia 
or both into understanding that one thing and usually in a very focused fashion so their enthusiasm probably won't for 90 percent of units probably won't translate to your own experience you'll sit there in a unit thinking why am i doing this this is boring why is the lecturer so enthusiastic about this idea that's just not my thing for me it was introduction to sociology was like the point where i had that that biggest conflict between someone who really enjoyed the subject and how it approached and the the field it looked at and how, how the discipline sort of operated and myself it just never gelled and i found it very frustrating because i just i couldn't see it uh it just had to be one of those units i had to just kind of get through i don't know did you have a, a particular unit or something that you just like you'd never quite got there with um i i did i think it's interesting uh hearing that from you of course um given how much Foucault has influenced both of our works now and I, I suspect he would have described himself as somewhat of a political sociologist at various times in his career so it's interesting that you didn't gel with sociology in that respect no but I did with philosophy and I described Foucault as a philosopher but again like that's a, a different angle anachronistic one perhaps but <laughs> I think it's one he'd approve of just given the sort of discussions he was having um in terms of a unit I, I really struggled with I think um when I was doing law, it was, you know, I came across lots of aspects of that that didn't sit well with me, that I didn't sort of have a passion for. And I think that's the point at which you need to sort of step back and go, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm better off looking at, you know, X, Y, or Z. Um, and so that's why, you know, that's how I ended up in, in terrorism studies, of course, was coming across and going, I can't stand doing family law. That's going to drive me mental. That's interesting, though, because I took a couple of units of media law and loved the difference. I knew I could never be a lawyer and I wasn't interested in chasing it, but I found the diversion and the, the different perspective thoroughly engaging. So I guess, yeah, there's going to be some units that you, you're not going to get through. You're going to just have to get through and, and um, hopefully not fail so you don't have to repeat them again because that would be fucking hell on earth. But... Yeah, I guess that's sort of a, a good introduction is, is be aware that you're working with specialists and we've all been that, through that. But the flip side of that, of course, is if you are really interested in something, then how do you become that specialist? And that's sort of the, the back end of this episode is really going to be looking at that. Um, at sort of Because one of those career pathways you have if you study IR is becoming one of those subject area uh, specialists. And, you know, as we've both seen, and I'm sure some of the listeners have before, you get to the position where you can assign your own textbooks uh, to people, which is a bit of a an interesting uh, guarded economy, if I've ever seen one. Yes, and cry about the fact that there are students who don't think that it's the best thing in the world. So that's sort of the, the, the really the biggest, broadest picture we can paint of studying. Or, or do you think it might be worth mentioning what's it like just in general? What's what's because we might have some some listeners who a variety of stages in their life who haven't studied at university or haven't studied arts at university. Maybe they've transferred. I know I came from a STEM background. I have a aborted uh, physics degree in my history. That I only got a year and a half into. So, uh, any general words of advice to someone stepping into an arts faculty as a day one undergraduate for the very first time, just before we move on? I think if you're particularly coming from one of the harder sciences, like a, like a STEM background or even um, something professional in nature like law, it can be easy to get sort of a bit overwhelmed. And I don't mean that in the intellectual sense. I mean that in sort of the fact that there are there is so much compressed into an arts faculty. And, you know, you might have three subjects with three different lecturers and they all have their own little niche area. And so you can get this impression of, you know, a herd of individuals that all have their own interpretation on what the greatest thing under the sun is. And I think that's that's a bit of a shift if you're coming from uh, a discipline with a more set orthodoxy. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm in the Department of Criminology at my institution, Faculty of Arts, which puts me alongside arts history, fine arts. My office is actually right next to um, the university's uh, musical archive, and surrounded by the academics in that particular department. So I walk past beautiful and ancient instruments I have no clue about every day on the way to my office, um, which is quite a spread, as you'd imagine. The other thing, of course, is that if you're coming from a, a you know hard science background, it can be hard to get used to the fact that people can be wrong. Um, you know, you will, you will, at some point in your university career, disagree uh, with something that a lecturer says. 
and find that you're not the one in the wrong and neither are they because it is such a, a field that's open to interpretation. Um, and if you come from a high school background or a STEM background, it can actually take a little while to sort of shift your thinking into working in that, that gray area of sorts. Yeah, actually, I think that's, as I'm teaching a, a couple of units at the moment that have a, a combination of both people coming from a professional background and, and a high school background. And I think that's one of the things I'm noticing the most is that the students, there's a tendency to pick up the textbook and expect sort of the answers to be there. The answers to be, you know, there's one right answer and it's in the back of the book. And particularly in arts, particularly when you're working in political science or international relations um, or terrorism is the worst of this because, of course, it's a very young discipline with a very, very sharp divide between it uh, with very strong debates. There isn't one right or wrong answer. That can be really intimidating, but the more important thing here and what I see my students struggling with a lot of the time is getting past the intimidation and diving in, shaping your own argument. The freedom of political science and the freedom of international relations is that when you start getting your hands on the theories and and start working with them, what you need to be thinking about doing, and and what you need to be thinking about doing, I guess, in, in any kind of art subject really is making them your own think to stacking a step back from what the theory says what the book says and thinking okay but what does this mean to me what how does this help me understand what's going on how am i using this in whatever field i'm looking at art history political science international relations um to a certain extent criminology even what is how am i using this as a tool as a screwdriver as a hammer as whatever to help me shape my understanding and taking that extra step, taking not just what the, like, well, Smith says this, but um, John says this, taking it and going, okay, but what we're looking at is this phenomenon, and Smith says something that's useful here, but it falls apart when you try and do this, and that's where John steps in. You know, synthesizing it, making that argument your own, is one of the most challenging things, but I think it's one of the most important and the most rewarding things of studying anything within the arts. It's also arguably the main... Uh, reason you would study arts in terms of if you're looking for something to further your career you know the common sort of saying or truism you hear a lot around particularly arts faculties unsurprisingly is that an arts degree teaches you how to think not what to think of course that depends on what university you're at the actual type of lectures you have but I think if you come out of the end of an arts degree with a better understanding of exactly what Alice is talking about about how to take disparate points and form your own opinion from them um, then you've got a, a vo- you've got value out of your arts degree more so I'd argue than what you actually learned. And often, like when people are actually looking at a resume and, and see an arts degree on it, and they're thinking clearly about what that means, that's actually the skill set they're looking for. So this is a good segue to us next section is which, what career options are available to someone holding an arts degree or specifically as an international relations specialist. And from what I've heard, particularly in uh, the Australian public service. That first point is actually one of the big ones they do look for, is someone who has developed a, an analytical mind, an ability to be flexible and engage with a variety of ideas and th- synthesize an appropriate response. Um, so broad spectrum, like day one, someone who knows what that degree means and knows how you have to proceed to achieve it, that would be one of the things they're looking at, is, is that sort of that, that ability to think, as you say. Well, I mean, the metaphor that I use when, when looking at sort of the, the various options available as, a, as careers is that you can either be on the stage or in behind the scenes, right? It's front of house, back of house. You, you can sort of divide the career fields into the sharp end of the stick, the actual practical application of what you learned and how you learned to think, or the more theoretical side, um, you know. And, of course, Alistair and I are currently in the more theoretical side, being, you know, teaching at, at university and, and on our way to become academics. And there's value in that. And I'm saying that as I hope there is, because that's where I'm going. But there's also careers available on the more practical side of things. Um, Things like working in foreign affairs, like Alistair pointed out, but working within the larger public service and also something as practical as law enforcement are options that are available to someone that studies politics or, or, or international relations. Absolutely. And a lot of these particularly... And I should, we should qualify this statement here by saying that uh, when we're speaking here, we're speaking primarily from the Australian perspective. 
because that's the country we live in and, and what we're used to. Your mileage may vary uh, depending on where you are listening to this, and you should always investigate your options outside of that. But particularly within Australia, the state public services um, and the federal public service, alongside law enforcement and military, all hold uh, pathways based on graduate outcome. So you can get a, a graduate placement that will circulate you through often multiple parts of that department or that branch of public service and give you an opportunity to come out with your arts degree, your, your, your understanding of analysis, your ability to, to think and, and your specialization to a certain extent. And then they don't expect you to actually have like a career focus. They'll, they'll give you sort of the tasting platter and see what you like and see what you're, you're best at, see what likes you best. It's more competitive. It's a difficult thing to get into, but I think it's if you were going to pathway out of a degree and into a particularly a government career in any of those kind of areas, I think that's probably one of the most valuable experiences you could have uh, is to have that you know have that opportunity to, to come and try. But I mean, for most listeners that have done anything with international relations or politics or have turned on the TV in the last twenty years, uh, you know, it's unsurprising when we talk about career options for politics and IR. What we go to are you know teaching, academia state-based stuff, so diplomacy, government, law enforcement. But what's often not talked about is the fact that we live in a, an increasingly globalised world, right? And everyone from the mum-and-pop uh, hardware store down the road all the way up to the four major banks, for example, here in Australia, have, have all got some relation, commercial or otherwise, with the international sphere. And so you find that, um, particularly if you combine... Uh, an IR sort of specialization with a business degree or a, or a commercial interest, you can find that that understanding of another part of the world, particularly if you pair it with a language, can serve you very well uh, in, in the commercial sense, in the business world. Because as trade barriers go down, and, and despite the actions of certain presidents, they are um, by and large going down, people are finding that in order to compete, and in order to compete well in overseas markets, you need to understand them. And, you know, corporate executives with 30 years working in their bank, for example, are not going to take the time to go and become a specialist in that area. And so as a specialist in that area or that country or that region, you can bring a really powerful uh, knowledge to the plate when you apply for a position at, sort of, at that sort of organization. There's also, like you're talking about sort of private and commercial interests, while we're talking about the private interests, there's also the development space. Um, if you're interested in state building or capacity building, uh, working with organizations like uh, Medicines Sans Frontières, uh, Engineers Without Borders, um, the United Nations, and so on, uh, anywhere in, in operating in that de development space with, with NGOs, is uh, they're always looking for people with specialized knowledge of a particular country or a particular environment. Uh, and within the development space, of course, often these organizations are working within uh, territories that may not be totally stable or, or may be undergoing particular conflict. So um, having a skill set that understands conflict and how it progresses, being able to perform those analyses can be very valuable to those organizations. Uh, so, you know, you'd be surprised sort of at the angles you can take on these things in the international sort of the, the NGO sector, or the, the development sector. And just to build on that point, it might interest listeners to know that one of the largest organizations to come out of the post-9-11 era is, in fact, terrorism-related reinsurance, which, of course, is when a company insures an insurance agency, right? And so they employ analysts to determine risk, to analyze the risk that's posed to a particular building or a particular site or a particular event in order to set their premiums. Um, we live in a society where the vast majority of trade, for example, travels on large, slow, usually unguarded vessels. And so even the modern-day pirate, as we spoke about in a previous episode, is something that shipping companies and their insurers have to consider. And that they do that by hiring people with IR and particularly security studies expertise. So there's a, a whole wide range of options, realistically. You can, you can pretty much take your knowledge and transfer the skills almost anywhere, really, in the, these kind of fields. Um, but that's not a path that Austin and I have taken, so there's a limit to sort of how far we can talk about in our own experience. Before we move forward to sort of the, the direction we've taken, though, um, I guess we need to talk a little bit of the specialization options and 
sort of what's important and where you might take things. Uh, if you're looking to, ex- you've already started a undergraduate arts degree and you want to branch into international relations, or you're already doing a, a international relations focused degree and you're looking at what you might want to specialize or expand your knowledge. You know, there's a lot of different units available. There's different fields um, that sort of cross over. Uh, what kind of options might you take um, to develop your knowledge a little bit more? What What's interesting? I don't know. Um, thoughts here, Austin? I think one of the things that, that students, particularly, I mean, I, when I'm teaching as well, I've found this recently. One of the things students struggle with is the concept that, you know, they have an interest, but how do you go from point A, which is the interest, to point B, which is a degree that reflects that interest? It's going to get you a career in a field you remain interested in. And often when you have subjects that have titles like Australian foreign policy or uh, dictatorships, well, it doesn't really tell you what's in them necessarily or what you'll get out of them. Uh, and so you, it's, it's quite easy, and a lot of people do go through their IR degrees and they come out the other side of their undergraduate degree with a very sort of general sense of IR but nothing that they can sort of go like I'm an expert in this and I mean postgraduate options are something we're going to talk about in a minute that are an option for achieving that Um, but I thought in this section it'd be good just to sort of talk to our listeners about what are some of these subfields and what can you sort of dip your toe in um, for a minor or even a single unit that will improve your ability to understand and engage with some of the deeper concepts when we look at IR. So as an example, um, Alison and I are both uh, terrorism studies focused. I mean, a lot of universities won't offer a terrorism degree, uh, but almost all, at least in Australia, will offer some sort of unit that deals with non-state violence, right? be that terrorists or, or transnational criminal actors. And even if you have no interest in terrorism, it can be good to sort of engage with these sort of units, at least I've found, because it offers you an insight into the nature of conflict and how that's changing. And a good way to sort of intro yourself into that more complex uh, international stage is to engage with some of the literature that is around and study that is around uh, the behavior of terrorist organizations. So another kind of on the same note, another direction you can take is in economics and Personally, I'm feeling a little bit hypocritical here because I've only ever taken two economics units in my entire six years as someone studying coursework, both at master's level and at undergraduate level. And I dropped one of those units halfway through. But I still think it's very important to understand and to engage in the literature, and I was very lucky that one of the units was quite broad spectrum in that. But much like terrorism studies and understanding conflict more generally is is useful within international relations, the pair of that, of course, is trade and economic development. We have an episode discussing the balance between these two. But having an opportunity where you're formally pushed to engage in economics literature can be very valuable in helping understand that. I would preface this, though, with a note of caution from my own experience. If you're choosing an economics unit, and I'm somewhat biased here because I am resistant to sort of much of the mainstream economic theory, But aim, I would suggest, for something more labeled like uh, political economy rather than introduction to economics. What I found is that introduction to economics courses tend to be very focused at very mainstream neoliberal economics theory. This is like the normal, pure game theory and rational act um, theory and so on. The problem with that is it's also normally aimed as a basic economics unit for people doing other more professional degrees, such as accountancy. That will not give you the best window into international relations, in my opinion. Um, You would be better off looking at a more broad spectrum unit that engaged in a variety of different economic theories, economic understandings of communism, of socialism, of capitalism, uh, but the different shades within that as well. And then other alternative, um, more maverick theories, like institutional economics, for example, these are having a more broad spectrum approach is always more beneficial in, in the economic sphere, I think. And so you have to be a bit cautious, but it's still worth chasing down if you get the chance. And in support of that, I, I would point out that, you know, when you're looking at all these other sub areas to sort of dip your toe in, you're not looking any, at developing a level of expertise in applying that theory, right? You're not going, I'm going to take one unit and become an economist. What you're trying to do is build understanding, right? And so 
as Alistair points out, going into a more broad-spectrum unit that looks at different interpretations of economic theory is important, particularly to someone studying IR, because outside of the West, and even sort of within smaller organisations in, say, Australia, for example, there are very different interpretations of economics at work. You know, if you do any work with, say, Venezuela, for example, or a failed state like Somalia, right, applying economic theory in the neoliberal, uh, like, very scientific sense doesn't work because there is no macroeconomics that, that functions in the same way in the case of, say, Somalia. Um, you just, you, you do, I think economics is one of those things you, you need to be, um, get as broad as you can if you have no background in it. And this is the thing. So, you know, as an IR specialist, you don't really need to have that specialist knowledge. So another example I'd point out is uh, coding, right? You don't actually need to be able to program, yeah? Even if you're looking at something like cyber warfare, what you need to be able to do is understand enough of it that you can interpret what's happening and what the capabilities of different actors are. And to do that, you can just take something as simple as sort of a broad overview course, as opposed to an introduction unit that's designed to build core level skills and you would then build on later in a specialized degree. Absolutely. And like you can apply this to any sort of special interest. If your interest was in uh, nuclear proliferation, you do well to do a basic physics unit. I got to be honest. Um, as someone who's done basic physics units, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding of the how a nuclear weapon functions in political science literature. They just they they don't know the physics, and that's kind of important. To go the other direction, though, and, and an area both you and I dived headlong into, and we've already alluded to this. Perhaps doing the arts degree. I don't want to scare anyone off, but it is a to undertake this kind of direction does take a particular kind of ability uh, a particular kind of flexibility and thought but if you have the inclination and the ability i think it's always worth picking up at least one if not more uh unit in philosophy because that's really taking that like learning how to think to a whole new level but you can draw a shorter bow there uh, as an example, when I was an undergrad, I did a course that was all about looking at the different philosophical understandings of what is power. Um, and that has a direct correlation, uh, for those who've seen earlier episodes or have an engagement with traditional IR, with realism. Realism is all about power, right? And particularly when you start to look at some of the newer uh, neo-realists and neoclassical realists, when they're talking about power, they don't mean military power, right? And having an understanding of how different philosophers, someone like Foucault or Locke, actually theorizes or conceptualizes that concept, power, um, can help you understand some of the different actions that states take in pursuit of power that don't necessarily line up with, you know, they are expanding their military, for example. I think there's a word to be said, though, about how it can set you up to engage with the, any kind of content you have. There's all sorts of specialist philosophy. I mean, you look at any kind of political science that's grounded in a, usually some Enlightenment philosophers' uh, conceptions of politics or, or, as you say, power. A base-level introduction to philosophy is always worth taking. Um, it can be a bit challenging, but it's usually worth it. Like I said, if you have sort of the inclination, you should always try and chase that a little bit more, I think. Of course, we took this uh, perhaps a little further than most in our uh, undergraduate days because we did our honours through uh, the philosophy stream rather than social sciences. So that was a, a bit more of an interesting engagement. We, there was a, a, a slightly different attrition rate in that class, wasn't there? There was, yeah. Uh, what was interesting, of course, is that Alice and I both made it to the end and neither of us were philosophy majors and lots of the others were. So, you know, it can be scary to jump into philosophy, but at least in our experience... It's not always the end of the world if you haven't engaged with it fully before you're sort of thrust into it. I would make one more point on philosophy, though, which is that particularly in IR, and I made this point a second ago with economics, philosophy, an understanding of different philosophical trends or schools, can also give you a level of empathy almost, right? A greater level of insight into how certain actors function, how certain political systems function, right? Even today, uh, you know, the East Asian uh, states, Japan, Korea, China to an extent, uh, all operate in a manner that if you understand uh, Confucian or traditionalist uh, conceptions of the world, makes a lot more sense. Yeah, um, you Look at some of the 
you know, look at Cold War Russia, for example. If you understand what was happening with Stalinism, if you understand the, the crux of Marxist philosophy, although I, I do take the point, of course, that by the end it wasn't really Marxism anymore. But if you understand the, cons- the actual building blocks of that worldview, it's a lot easier to understand the actions they subsequently take. And you don't really get that from studying just IR. Yeah, to, to take the um, original point we made about what to do with an arts degree being flexibility of thought and, and analysis, philosophy really takes that and dials it all the way to 11, done properly. But that's sort of, by now we've, we've finished our undergraduate degrees, we've seen all of these other wonderful opportunities in government, in private sector, and NGOs, and decided instead to drink the Kool-Aid, or maybe we're coming from one of those professional backgrounds and we've decided to, to take this to post-grad level or, or beyond. I guess the best thing to start with here is that we're both at that point. We've, we've both well and truly drunk the academic Kool-Aid. Austin, why? Why did you do it? Why, why are you undertaking a PhD? Well, clearly, I'm just a member of the bourgeoisie, uh, and I love my ivory tower. Um, I think it's, it's one of those things where if you have really get hooked by a, a theory or a, a, a challenge in the world, then academia can offer you an unparalleled seat from which to engage with that issue or that theory or that problem, right? If you're in the professional sector, you're working for a company, you're working for an objective, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it can stymie your ability to really sort of delve deeper into what fascinates you, what your passion is. And I I think for for me, academia has, has allowed me to pursue that in a way I couldn't really get in the private sector. Yeah, I'm the same. It's the only place, I think, where from sort of day zero on the job, as it were, someone turns around and says, not here's your project, but what's your project? What do you want to study? What are you pursuing and how are you doing that? And in Australia, at least, um, under the main model that's used by Australian universities, that starts with honours. The first sort of research project, you get handed your, your own. Uh, We've sort of talked about our experiences before in the past, but this can be, I think, if you've just finished a basic degree, particularly in Australia, I think this is something that uh, you should, if you're even slightly curious about academia, you should do honours. You should try and give it a go and see where it takes you because it's only an extra year. You get your own project, and even if you decide not to take it further, it's a valuable thing to have. But more than that, it gives you the opportunity to, to really strike out on your own in a way. I, I don't think that anyone else at that sort of, particularly if you've gone straight from high school, anyone else at that age bracket really gets a chance to do in a professional environment. I, I completely agree. It, it's one of those things where that can be, that can be really challenging uh, for someone to go, okay, up to this point, you've been told what to study. You've been given things you'll be tested on and you'll be examined on. And, you know, particularly, I think, in the last, you know, five or six years, in Australia at least, there's been this a bit of a shift towards trying to study for the exam. And I understand the reasons behind that from an individual perspective, right? Everyone wants to do well. Um, But if you come from that perception, it can be really scary to suddenly be you know, sort of cast adrift almost. You have a supervisor, um, but no one is giving you the answer. No one is telling you where to look. Um, and so it can be a really liberating experience or it can be something that, that's scary when you start. The key to all of that is finding a topic. Uh, for me, it was uh, handed to me on a platter, actually, uh, by the events around me. Um, my honours project was looking at uh, the r- rise of the Islamic State in Iraq. At, when I was doing it, they were still on the sort of the upswell. They were, they were still expanding rapidly across northern and eastern Iraq, and, and hadn't started really to um, suffer any major losses at this point. This is sort of during the rise, the expansion of the Syrian civil war as well. So it seemed pretty obvious to me. No one was writing about this. No one really understood it just yet. Uh, because it was still happening. So I jumped right in and, and came to that topic. That was um, an easy handball for me. You had a, a similar story, didn't you? I wouldn't say it was a, an easy handball. Um, I went through a lot a lot uh, longer thought process, I would, I would say, given your explanation just then of your process. 
I, I wouldn't say I was accused of having a process. I looked up one day and said, hey, that looks interesting. Yeah, so I actually had a process. <laughs> I uh, was looking at probably three or four different options um, before I decided on my honors project, which was looking at uh, why we uh, allow uh, the... Sorry, which was looking at the drone strike program that had been undertaken by the United States and what the socio societal factors were that were affecting how that was allowed to continue and, and why we sort of accepted it in the way that it was. Of course, I had an easier time finding a PhD topic than you did, Alistair, um, because once I'd found that, that then led organically into what I'm doing my PhD on now, which is, of course, sort of an, a step on from that. But in terms of the honours actual process, you're not just doing a research project, are you? No. So in Australia, for most universities that offer an honours program for uh, political science, which is our experience, or arts more generally, um, it's coupled with a coursework component. So you'll have your own project, which is the brand new thing that you have to come up with your own. And how you come about that is sort of um, a bit flexible. You have to come up with the idea. You have to put a proposal to a supervisor. It can be a bolt out of the blue like it was for me. Uh, it can be stupidly obvious, or it can be a process that you have to really think about, like in the case of Austin. Um, in either case, I guess we should probably give a little bit more complex, uh, more concrete advice in how that happens. Um, the first and most important thing would be to speak to an academic, to, to speak to people who might be a good supervisor. Normally, it would be a lecturer in the field um, that you've been exploring, so you've done really well and, and really enjoyed a unit on terrorism or international relations or economic theory or something along those lines and you go to that lecturer and say hey i have this idea or hey i have this beginning of an idea that i'd like to explore and work with them to sort of shape it a little bit um to become a proposal and then they will usually uh, be quite excited often i've found to to be a supervisor particularly at a non-phd level i found most academics to be um, quite eager, actually, to take on students, particularly given that, uh, the, from their perspective, I think there's less sort of uh, financial or professional incentive to take on students at that lower level. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely less professional incentive. Um, you know, for, for most middle-tier academics here in Australia, at least, one of your sort of key performance indicators is the number of PhD candidates you've supervised to successfully submitting. Um, but I think... You know, those two options that asked to lay out, of course, you know, going to a lecture and saying, I have an idea, or going to a lecture and saying, I have a, a nugget of an idea, are two. But there's also nothing wrong with saying, you know, I, I really like this general field. I, I want to find my place in it. And, and going to a lecturer or going to another academic or, or going to even a friend um, who's sort of in the area and, and asking them, you know, what, what's, what hasn't been done or what do you think would be interesting? What could I try? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, outside of political science, say, for example, in psychology, it's expected that you'll be given a topic by your supervisor. So there's nothing wrong with not knowing what exactly what you want to do. And the other thing we haven't mentioned is that even an honours thesis will change um, and, and sometimes change quite dramatically during that year you're writing it. And so I guess my, my point I'm trying to make here is don't, feel that because you don't have an idea you think I can commit a year of my life to this that you don't pursue this you should pursue this and then come up with an idea that you think you can spend a year on absolutely uh, my honors project shape uh, got reshaped slightly I'd say overall um, from proposal to uh, completion but during my master's I also undertook similar projects and the first one I undertook um, started as a broad conception of defining war and ended as a very focused exploration of the construction of legitimacy in the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, quite in line, in fact, actually, I relied heavily on some of your uh, honours work. As you, as you know, Austin, you sent me the drafts. Um, although it was a very different project. Uh, but you can see sort of like that can be the length of the change. And I remember my then supervisor accepting the proposal as broad as it was. And this is, a, I guess, another important thing. No one expects your proposal to at all look like the final product and the expectations of what it is and 
what its scope is can actually be very different to what they actually expect from when you start working. My supervisor accepted the proposal for the understanding the modern definition of war and then on day one said, okay, so what are we, how are we sharpening this? Because this is way too broad. So he accepted the proposal knowing full well that it was not and never was going to be really a description of what the final project was. That's normal. That's not exceptional at all. That's, that's the process. So never feel like you have to have everything nailed down perfectly for your proposal. It is, even when you think you've got a great idea of what you're doing, it is that nugget of an idea, really, that you're trying to put forward. Mm. Capacity to think. Especially at honours level. Especially at honours level. So before we sort of start to tie this up, I guess um, there's an elephant in the room that we need to address, and, and that's, that's um, taking it beyond honours and really taking a swig of the Kool-Aid and deciding that you're going to under, undertake a PhD, specifically a PhD by research. And I think we've structured the episode a little bit incorrectly because now we're at the PhD stage and the concept that you get, the impression that you get as a listener is that the PhD is the pinnacle. And from an academic sense, it, it sort of is, but you know, it is really a fork in the road, right? You can... As Al said, you can either take a master's and, and that could lead to other things or it could lead directly into employment. Or you can sort of stay here in the scholars department and, and do a PhD. And that's where we, we both sort of find ourselves now. Um, of course, this end discussion is all going to be sort of focused on, on our experiences and the, the state of affairs in Australia. You know, it's worth mentioning, of course, that, you know, in the United States, for example, a PhD contains coursework. Um, in uh, somewhere like South Korea, for example, it's often uh, a slight mix of the, the English or Australian style and the US style and how they function. So, you know, take this sort of section with a, a little bit of a grain of salt. And if you're interested in joining, you know, the, the ranks of the doctorate, um, it's worth checking uh, the sort of the requirements in your area, so to speak. This is something I guess we should really do kind of piece by piece. So if you're an Australian... You've got your honours. Um, you've decided to drink the Kool-Aid. What's the process? What's the very first thing that you need to do? And this is something that I've tripped up on slightly in the past. I, You said, as you mentioned before, you had a more direct, obvious pathway from your honours straight to a PhD. For me, I was um, spent a bit of time, and this partially influenced my decision to undertake a master's, uh, not having a clear understanding of, of what kind of idea and how big an idea I needed to have before I even started the application process. And even when I did for the PhD position I currently hold, um, in the six months I was kind of putting together the proposal and talking to people, um, it changed very dramatically. And I had some knockbacks early on in the piece because of how I was approaching things because of the um, style of proposal I was putting together. Knockbacks that were very useful, actually, in, in helping me get the final point. But this is a bit different to... Honours, you need to have a bit more of a concrete idea of how you're approaching things here, don't you? You do, um, and uh, but that that doesn't mean you need to have a fully worked out proposal that you are wedded to. Um, the first step, I, I would say, is you need to find a type of academic for which you would like to have advise you. Um, we call it a supervisor um, in Australia, but. I much prefer the, the more American term of advisor because that's the role they sort of take on, particularly after the first year of your PhD is complete. So the idea is that you should, the first step anyone should really take is go out, you know, have a look on the Google, as we, as we say, and uh, have a look at the universities near you or the universities you'd be interested in going to and have a look at their faculty. Um, you know, most universities will have some sort of supervisor database. Um, for example, the Australian Catholic University uses what they call Rexar. Um, and that will show you all of the academics they have that are qualified to supervise PhDs and their areas of interest. I, for example, had a three A4 page document um, listing out all the supervisors that I could go and look at um, so that when I started looking at and refining my idea to propose, I could tailor the proposal um, in a couple of different ways to sort of acknowledge the different expertises I could draw on, depending on which supervisor I went with. So I think once you've got your nugget of idea, the next step is to find a supervisor. And then only the third step 
is actually, as Alistair said, bringing it beyond that nugget and actually putting it together as something more substantive. And just on that, when you're trying to engage with a supervisor, and we won't go into massive depth here because, A, I think there's a lot of really good guides and uh, pieces of advice online, specifically how to approach a supervisor cold, someone you've never met before, and the kind of way to write the initial email. But one thing I would say is, is do think about uh, what that supervisor does bring to the table, why you're approaching them, and what, even before you write the email, what kind of expertise you think you're, you're drawing on from them, what, what role they're going to fill in the project. Um, that's going to vary from project to project. It might be, um, as a, is the case with my supervisor, um, someone who ha- comes from a very dis- different discipline uh, than you do and brings knowledge of that discipline which you do not have and advice from that discipline that you do not have and, and bridges gaps in your own knowledge. That's one of the wonderful things I have working with my supervisor is someone who has an understanding of criminology and law, which I have no idea about. I've approached her a couple of times with questions about, I think I've got this law right, or I think I understand what this means, and um, been very, very thankful for the advice she's been up to give me in, in that regard. But maybe you want someone who's more specialized in exactly the project you're looking at. Maybe you want to be able to have an expert that's more focused and you're going to work more directly with on a specific topic. That's a different direction you might go in. Um, thoughts here? I think you've hit on the crux of what is different about a PhD compared to any other degree, and that is the, the progression you make, right? This is not a, a process by which you come out the other end um, and you are assessed and you get over 50% and P's make degrees and here's your piece of paper. The natural progression... Um, is that you start off knowing less than your supervisor, if you get someone in your sort of broad area at least. And by the end of your PhD, you should know more than your supervisor about your niche area, your research question, right? Because it's not a process for pumping out qualified people. It's a process for creating experts, right? And so often you'll find as you get through a PhD, the questions you're asking your supervisor become less and less what Alistair's talking about and much more along the lines of, have I made this argument correctly? With your greater understanding of the scholarly environment than me, have I missed anything that would be criticised by another academic, for example? And I think that's, that misconception is often um, at, the, at the core of what people sort of mis-expect from their supervisors. Yeah, it's it's a difficult kind of until you start actually undergoing the process, it's sort of a different, th- difficult thing, I think, to, to wrap your head around. I know when you sort of were at the point that I was at now and started to realize this, and I was still in Masters, I was um, struggling with that idea. And now I'm sort of just starting, starting to see the other side of it, I guess. The other side, the other pointy thing, I guess, we've got to talk about here, and again, this is going to be very focused to the Australian experience, and we really can't speak to... Um, overseas experiences here because I don't think we really have any or you might have some knowledge I guess I I certainly don't feel qualified at all to comment here and that's uh how the hell do you pay for the damn thing because unlike and and this is a big word of warning unlike uh an undergraduate or even a master's level where you might balance different perspectives unless you're going to undertake a PhD part-time from what I've seen and what I've heard of, of people's fellow students around me I could not possibly ever advise anyone to try and work and do a PhD at the same time, not in a self-sustaining way. So you're going to have to get an income from somewhere else, and that means uh, getting funding, uh, primarily through scholarships. But I, I think, and you know, in this podcast and, and offline, Alistair and I, we, we talk a lot about the power of discourse. Um, and I think there's a lot of that at play here. You find that, depending on university, um, usually post- uh, what's called confirmation after your first year, you stop being referred to as a student and people talk about it as a PhD candidate. Um, you're not studying anymore. You're, you're working, you're conducting research. And so even though it's called a scholarship, um, it's effectively a, a wage to conduct the research. And that's how you really have to look at it. It's not like a scholarship at undergraduate level that's designed to help someone who's suffered some sort of disadvantage or you know, reward academic excellence. This is really about providing you a living wage so you can focus on your topic area and become that expert. 
right? It's not a charitable handout, right? The at least the Australian government is investing in creating subject matter experts that live in Australia. And so that's really how you have to sort of look at this section, yeah? And that's why there are there's a lot more stringent process around actually securing one. So the first big piece of advice, I guess, in the Australian context we should flag is that a lot of people focus on, as you mentioned, the, the federal government uh, grants, the research training program grants. Um, they are very competitive. Uh, in fact, all scholarship opportunities tend to be very competitive, but they come with a very specific set of expectations, and it's becoming harder and harder, in fact, to get a lot of those positions. The first thing I would say is that um, from the get-go, expand your horizons. Look at alternative funding options. There are often um, departmental scholarship opportunities. There are often, depending on the area you're looking at, there may be private business or uh, private um, beneficiary style scholarship opportunities as well so always be looking to apply not just for more than one university or more than one position but look at all the different scholarship opportunities that might fund your research because it's a much wider world than it might initially seem particularly as we are at the moment when we're about to start talking about the difficulties of securing a scholarship and the competitive nature of it um if everyone's applying for the federal ones that's you're, you're putting yourself you only got one horse in the race you know what i mean yeah and you have a obviously if you don't mind me pointing this out i mean you're on a non-governmental phd scholarship at the moment yeah that's correct my scholarship's funded through the department um whereas i'm on an rtp so we can sort of show you as the listener both sort of sides of this option so when alistair points out that you know there are other options he's not just saying that there was a you went through a, a quite difficult process um, in terms of getting a scholarship um, because it is such a competitive environment um, that's largely based on things that are outside the individual student or candidate's control. Um, that it is quite a valuable asset to have, and you're 100% right. You know, if you don't apply for these other grants, which are indeed out there, as Alistair proves by the fact that he's around. <laughs> You, you really do miss out. The other thing, and, and while you mentioned that, sort of one of the difficulties we should point to at the moment um, is uh, the standards of entry that are required, particularly with the RTP, although it translates to other scholarship boards as well. What will happen is that your scholarship application normally will be separate from your PhD application. And that will go first with my university and with other universities I know of. Um, generally speaking, it will go to a point scoring round and your, not just your actual application itself, but your broader academic record will score you points. One of the big things that we should flag right now is publications are a big part of that. Being, if you can at all think about sort of towards the end of your honors or during um, your masters or even as an undergraduate, if you have the opportunity to submit a piece of work that you're very proud of, that scored very, very well, for publication, it is incredibly valuable later on the line to have that that record. Um, this is something you should be talking to your lecturers about or your supervisor about, um, and they'll be very supportive and encouraging of it. You should also be aware that um, different processes will put different weightings on publications. Some, uh, some will accept any publication in an academic peer-reviewed journal as sort of worth points. Some universities, including some I applied for, will only count uh, publications in particular journals, normally A-star or Q1-ranked journals. So that's something you should be aware of, and that's sort of, it's trending towards becoming more restrictive rather than not, I find. Do you have anything to add on this? I know you're actually more sort of in the publishing sphere about around these things. Do you, can you talk about how your university operates or your experiences here? It is easy to get caught up. Um, in the journal count, in whether you published or not. And particularly at this point, it is difficult to publish as an undergrad. Um, and there's nothing unusual about getting to the end of your honours and you have nothing published. Your honours itself is actually usually a decent thing to try to get published. But beyond that, there are other things that get you, get you points. Um, one of them, of course, is the track record of your supervisor, your primary supervisor. And so that's another reason why you want to do your research before you put in a formal application. Because as Alistair points out, of course, 
your PhD application is assessed by the university uh, separately from your application for a scholarship of any variety. And so it is not only possible, but increasingly likely as the process gets more and more competitive, that you could end up with a PhD place, but no scholarship. So while we're on that, there's another kind of area that um, may weigh into how you understand um, your career path if you're deciding you want to do that, this academic line and looking at scholarships that should be mentioned. And that's that uh, there's often also an emphasis, um, some points in uh, professional experience, particularly professional experience that may have come with research or um, publications. So alongside Q1 and A-star style journals, often um, research reports through a private organization or governmental research reports often count equally um, to an A-star or Q1 peer-reviewed journal article. Uh, Again, different universities will vary on this often, but not always. They will have um, their point scoring system available. Uh, But that's worth keeping in mind is that if maybe you're struggling a little bit, it might be worth looking at um, graduate opportunities or uh, any opportunities in a research think tank um, at an entry level that might allow you to get your name on something and to to get a little bit of that practical experience. That that can actually be very valuable. And it's another thing that is being emphasized now, from the conversations I've had at least, is being emphasized now in what uh, they're looking at when they're looking at uh, scholarship applicants as, as someone who's got a demonstrated uh, professional record. It can be very advantageous. So you've got a topic, you've got a supervisor, and you've got a scholarship. Then, unfortunately, at this point in the PhD, you sort of dropped in it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I know from my experience, there's certain pieces of advice that, that I would like to have had, and I know Alistair is sort of getting that as well. I guess... The one piece of advice I'd like to have given myself is to continue to actually go out and physically meet other PhD students and have those conversations about your experiences as you're having them, even with people that are outside your subject discipline area. There isn't actually all that much difference between the experience of doing a PhD in political science and doing a PhD in education um, or in some other form of the arts. And so it is very easy to end up in a position where you are quite lonely in your research. You spend all day by yourself in your office. And that is one of the reasons that there are uh, certainly difficulties that are faced by certain people doing their first year. And so, yeah, that would be my piece of advice is go out and meet other PhD students. Don't let the research take over too much of your life. Alistair? I was quite lucky in that um, you were already doing a PhD student when I started, so I could come and annoy you with those kinds of questions. And also, um, my faculty uh, is fairly close-knit, and uh, when I started at Monash, there were a few mixing events early on that sort of emphasized that point, so I was lucky I didn't have to have that. I guess the biggest thing I've struggled with, and I'm still getting my head around, is uh, the intimidation of the project you get to a certain point i certainly am still struggling with the idea of how much i'm supposed to be getting done how many words i'm supposed to be getting done um a week a month a year and that's sort of a hangover i guess from undergraduate days where you get given a deadline of three thousand words for an essay end of semester or whatever and i look back at sort of how many of those i've done and what i've done now and it doesn't look like i'm working as hard as i think i should be but by the same token there's a reason why they give you three years to work on the project. And that's because the first year, you don't write nearly as much as you think you would. You do a hell of a lot more reading than you'd expect, but you don't write as much as you think you would. I guess the point I'm getting at here is that although the project is your own to manage, it's much larger and much longer than you think. You shouldn't panic overly about what you're not doing. You should focus on what you are doing what the next paragraph is, what the next journal article you need to read is, work the problem, work the project one step at a time rather than getting too caught up in how am I going to get this big thing done at the end of three years? You'll get it done. Just work one step at a time. Don't try and take the whole thing all at once. It's too big. It's three to 500 words a day. If you're doing three to 500 words a day, most days, you know, 80% of the time, then you'll have 100,000 words before you even hit the end of the second year, just mathematically. Um, yeah. I guess the last point before we wrap up, of course, is that 
you've got to worry about the imposter syndrome, which I know everyone sort of struggles with. But at, at this point, uh, it can be particularly daunting, particularly as you you know prepare for your first conference or that sort of thing, or your first teaching. And so that'd be my last point, I think, is that be aware the imposter syndrome will come and you're almost always wrong about it. Well, on that note, that's well and truly our time for tonight. Just before we leave you, a quick admin note. We'll be moving to a monthly release schedule to reflect our new time constraints. So join us in the first week of October when we'll take a look at Orientalism and its application to modern politics. Until next time then, once again, thank you very much for listening. And good night.